The queen is dead. Long live the king. And also on today's show, just exactly who is watching porn in Saudi Arabia and the GCC? Well, spoiler alert, it ain't just dudes. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to the Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. It is episode 299, <laughs> September 15th, 2022. And uh, indeed, indeed, uh, the queen, Queen Elizabeth II, has passed away on September 8th, 2022, just a few days ago. She came into power. She was born April 21st, 1926. She was 96 years old. She came into power on the 6th of February, 1952. She was the longest reigning monarch, reigning 70 years, seven months, and two days. Uh, Quite incredible. Her funeral is scheduled. Uh, for a few days, I believe, on Monday. And uh, she, incredible, incredible one to just to have made it to 96, an incredible life that she led, uh, loved by many millions around the world being mourned. Uh, the United Arab Emirates de- declared, I believe, three days of mourning. Here in Oman, the flags were being flown half-mast, so you know that, you may know or may not know, that the Sultanate of Oman has a long-standing and very close relationship with the the royal family and the Queen of England and the UK in general, um, as Queen Elizabeth and the monarch of the UK really helped Sultan Qaboos come into power and have a bloodless, largely bloodless uh, coup overthrowing his father who uh, wasn't helping the people. And uh, Sultan Qaboos then came into power here in Oman and really built up the country out of nothing. When Sultan Qaboos came into power, who passed away in 2020, and now we have a new sultan, Sultan Haitham, uh, there is seven kilometers of paved road in this nation, one school and one hospital. And over the last 45 years, the nation has developed. Uh, but largely, it's due to the relationship that Sultan Qaboos had and ha- well, had both of them with the Queen of England and, and their close ties between the nations. So it's been a, a time of mourning across the region here in the Middle East uh, with the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, and a time of mourning, of course, around the globe, especially in the UK, where they're mourning the loss of their beloved queen. Now, of course, she doesn't have a, a, she is not without critic. Uh, anyone who does anything significant in their life will have critics, will have people who disagree with them. And uh, a warning sign, if you don't have a critic, if you don't have people who disagree with you, you better watch out. You probably have some uh, man-pleasing problems. And it's just, one, it's just impossible. There's a, a, a proverb. Uh, Jesus Christ said, woe to you, to everyone who speaks well of you. For so they, so, so they did of the, those who killed the prophets of old. So it's like, woe to you if everyone speaks well of you. So here's Queen Elizabeth II. She did some very notable things, which we're going to touch on. And then there's some points of legitimate controversy around her. 
uh, as I poked around the interwebs, looking at, you know, some of the things about Queen Elizabeth's life, one of the most fascinating things was that when World War II broke out in 1939, Princess Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, was only princess at that time, was only 13 years old, and she wanted to join the army. She, she was feeling compelled to join this great fight against the Nazis. And of course, she was barred. She, it's impossible, Mr. Hill. Like, you, you can't, you're part of the royal family. We're not going to let you go to war. Well, as the war dragged on, her sense of duty increased. And when she was 18, they finally gave her permission to join the war effort to some degree. And she, so she joined the Women's Auxiliary Territory Service, the ATS, and she trained for six weeks as an auto mechanic. Now, it wasn't a combat role, but they said it still came with risks as 335 members of the ATS were killed during the war. Um, and she did go home to sleep at Windsor Castle every night. But nonetheless, as a member of the royal family, she could have just sat back and said, you know what, I'm going to let my, my people fight for me. But she felt compelled to do her part to serve in the way that she could. Uh, incredible beloved by many. Uh, she also oversaw a huge change in the British Empire to a commonwealth. Now, not all of those uh, instances of letting go of power or letting go and giving sovereignty back to nations uh, went very smoothly. Um, but that was one of the things she largely oversaw was that transition and transforming the British Empire into a nation of voluntary sovereign states. Um, most nations who have massive empires that go through such a transition, they normally go down in, in flames. And Queen Elizabeth was able to largely, peacefully and orderly, uh, transition and give sovereign, sovereignty back to nations. Uh, moving away from the colonial rule of the British Empire. Now, which we're going to cover before you pull out your pitchforks and uh, move to fillet me, um, we are going to cover some of the instances in criticism where she didn't do so well, where there's a lot of people who aren't mourning her death. And I think it's it would be a miss to not cover that as... I think some of these, a lot of these instances, they're legitimate. There's legitimate pain that people have from the horrors of colonialism. Uh, one of the other positive notes that Queen Elizabeth did do was her involvement, her focus, and her support of charity work. She is credited with supporting over 600 charities in Britain and 3,000 charities worldwide and raising close to 1.4 billion pounds or $2 billion uh, of funds, I believe a year, for these charities worldwide. And it was her focus to reduce poverty and to make the world a better place. Um, I particularly loved Queen Elizabeth II. I thought, you know, she was like one of these icons. I, I, thought she was never going to die. She's always going to be around. It's like, 
man, she, she's one of those ones that she's going to make it to like 290. Um, just going to live forever. But uh, alas, we are all flesh. We are but a breath and a vapor here today, gone tomorrow like the, the vapor when we breathe out on a cold day. We see it for a moment and then we're gone. I frequently think about the, the inevitable end of each of our lives, which is one day, 100% of us will die. Um, we, we will fall asleep and pass away. And that day might be today. Um, and it is good and right for us to reflect upon and number our days uh, so that we might live them rightly, so that we might give our time, energy, and focus to things that matter, to things that are lasting, to things that are noble and upright and worthy of our lives. Otherwise, we're just going to spend it on the infinite scroll of TikTok or Instagram, totally wasting our life destiny away. We'll wake up when we're 72 with, uh, yeah, a miserable, miserable, terrible life. Well, as I said, her life was not without controversy. Queen Elizabeth II's death uh, caused a number of people around the world to stir up controversy again and be like, hey, I'm not going to mourn her death. I'm not going to play along with this game of theater, pretending like she was some great noble person. When there is a large amount of pain that she left in her wake, especially in in Africa, as uh, the transition from the UK's colonial past, the the British Empire's colonial past, into uh, independence, and so there are many, including Nigeria's president Mohamed Buhari and Kenyan president Ahuru Ahuru. Uh, Kenyatta, Kenyatta, who were among those to express condolences for the icon. But there are many who also criticized. For instance, when Kenya gained their independence from, in, from Britain in 1963, it was after an eight-year-long rebellion that left at least 10,000 people dead. And uh, it says, uh, when I was doing research, it says that a decade before 1952, a rebellion known as the Mau Mau Uprising had shaken the British colony. Not only did the British spend an estimated 55 million pounds suppressing the uprising, they also carried out massacres of civilians, forced several hundred thousand Kenyans into concentration camps, and su suspended civil liberties in some cities. The war ended in the imprisonment and execution of many rebels, but the British also understood that things had permanently changed. Now, that is not from some extremely biased uh, institution or publication. That's from history.com. That excerpt was from history.com. So, which is, they do a good job at trying to at least be pretty middle of the road and trying to report history um, as far as what happened. So, these things are, are horrible. They, they truly are. Um, horrendous. And so there are many people who aren't just willing to forget these atrocities. They aren't just willing to stand by and pretend like these things didn't happen. Um, uh, while some praised 
her role in leading to Nigeria's independence, which we're going to get into a little bit of what happened into Nigeria as well. Uh, they pointed out that the Queen of England, she supported the Nigerian army during the civil war in Nigeria between 1967 and 1970, which resulted in more than a million people dying from starvation, disease, and ethnic cleansing of the Legbo people. The, the Legbo were wanting independence from a largely Islamic state, and it turned into genocide with tens of thousands of people being just slaughtered at an ethnic cleansing. It resulted in uh, embargoes and famines. And the UK's involvement in this crisis was first one of saying, well, we want to see who is going to come out on top. We, we, we want to make sure that we're on the right side of this. And it, this happened just around the time of the Six-Day War. And so the UK decided to back the national government in, in to push for a continued unity and stability of the country because they wanted to continue to access cheap oil. Because with the Six-Day War, the Suez Canal was being closed. And so they were looking to secure their supply of oil. Well, so there's been a lot of criticism against the UK government for backing the Nigerian government that was committing genocide against Catholics who wanted a level of freedom from their government. They wanted a level of independence. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a mixed history that, that colonialists have, and it's a mixed history that Queen Elizabeth II has uh, as she had to navigate some of these extremely challenging uh, issues and subjects. Uh, one quote, this is coming from uh, newarab.com. One quote uh, from a Nigerian um, professor in America. He was saying, if the queen had apologized for slavery, colonialism, and neocolonialism, and urged the crown to offer reparations for the millions of lives taken in her, their names, then perhaps I would do the human thing and feel bad, he wrote on Twitter. As a Kenyan, excuse me, he's a Kenyan. As a Kenyan, I feel nothing. This theater is absurd. And you know what? I can empathize. I can empathize with that. Of course, we have talked numerous times on the show how it is part of the socialist Marxist ideology to see these colonialist states, to see them overthrow their, their colonizers before they're ready for a level of independence. Because after, even after the UK stepped out of places like Nigeria, it led to decades long of conflict because the nation wasn't ready. And some blame it on whether the constitution was set up in a fair way. Others people blame it on religious conflict and ethnic cleansing. Uh, the, the point being, it was a, a very difficult time for her and the reviews are mixed. Well, who is taking her place? It is none other but King Charles, King Charles III, born in 1948. Now, one notable thing 
that King Charles is known for that I think is applicable to our context is that he's actually, uh, the theories have it, I guess you'd say, he is one of the most pro-Islamic, pro-Muslim monarchs that possibly the UK has ever seen. Back in 1966, the Grand Mufti of Cyprus, shockingly, claimed that the king is secretly a Muslim. So he claimed back in 1996, excuse me, that 1996, that Prince Charles then, now King Charles III, was actually a Muslim. In 1993, King Charles was made the patron of the renowned Oxford Center for Islamic Studies. And he has said some pretty notable quotes positively uh, praising Islam. And I'm going to read some of them for us today. These are just things that he has said, which I think it's, it's interesting to see his stance on Islam, his stance on uh, world religion, and how, to, how he might be leading the nation forward in, in the coming years. He's also, by the way, the oldest monarch to take power. He has said, quote, for that which binds our two worlds, which would be Islam and Christianity, is so much more powerful than that which divides us. He's also said, more than this, Islam can teach us ways of understanding and living in the world which Christianity itself is the poorer for having lost. And I understand this statement because in many ways, the bulk majority of Christianity has lost the, you know, mainstream Lutheran Orthodox groups have moved away from their belief in scripture and they're adopting LGBTQ agenda saying, yes, we recognize that in the Bible that it says that homosexual marriage is wrong but we're going to allow it in the church now. But we think that God has changed his mind. So honestly, these are truly things that not all of the church, but a portion of the church has explicitly compromised on. A, a, a number, a number of people that I know have explicitly compromised on these very clear issues when it comes to our faith. He's also said that we are, and this is in 2006, in a speech in Egypt, he said, we need to remember that we in the West are in debt to scholars of Islam, for it, for it was thanks to them during the dark ages in Europe, the treasuries of classical learning were kept alive. He said in 2013, in a speech to the World Islamic Economic Forum in London, he said, where then might we, where then might the solution lie? It is clear from the Quran and indeed from the Bible too that humanity has a sacred responsibility for the stewardship of the earth. Now, King Charles is uh, very keen on conserving nature and stewarding the earth well. So, these are some incredibly positive remarks that he has made about Islam, which I think will really point us to some of the ways, some of the ideas that he is going to, and the ways that he is going to lead the UK forward. Now, as the king, obviously, he's not 
the prime minister. He's not the president. He's not doing day in, day out uh, legislation, per se. That's what the parliament is doing. But he still has, as a figurehead, as a person that has relationship with other nations around the world, he still does set a tone for where the nation will go. Yeah, that makes sense. In a post-truth society where we've exchanged truth for lies and reason for postmodern and rationality, the truth, well, the absurd, finally makes sense. And the truth, well, it just doesn't really exist anymore. In postmodernism, the entire idea is that you cannot know truth. There's no such thing as reason. Reason is only a tool, a weapon of the white supremacist colonialists who are searching for ways to oppress people. If you can use reason and math and showing up on time, that can oppress people. Well, this is postmodernism for you. Uh, here is a, we have two different kind of sub subsections in this portion today that are somewhat connected, somewhat disconnected, but they both kind of fall underneath this basic umbrella of absurd things. Uh, on the in Saudi just this last week. There was a clip by Dr. Nazir Bahaburbi, who is the head of the Saudi Infectious Disease Society in Jeddah. Now, he, I'll play a portion of the clip. The clip is in Arabic, so I'm not going to play the entire portion, but we'll play a quick portion of the clip. وصلت النسبة إلى اللي جاوبوني على الاستبيان وهم كانوا أكثر من ثلاثة آلاف إمرأة وصلت إلى اثنين وتسعين في المئة فبالتالي أنا دحين في في كثير من الدورات اللي ما قبل الزواج أقول للرجال ما يمديك إنك أنت تهاجم زوجتك اللي what he said there for, for all you who don't know Arabic I'll give you the the translation what he said is that he put a survey out. Now, this is not a double-blind tested survey that's, you know, statistically correct across the spectrum of people in Saudi Arabia, but he put a survey out and he, in 2014, and he found that only 23% of Saudi women had seen or viewed a pornography at least one time in the past year. So it's not viewing it every day, but it is saying, in the past year, 2014, what percentage of you, and this is going to be a certain subset of people who follow him specifically, women in Saudi have viewed porn? 23%. I don't think that's necessarily a shocking number. He redid the study in 2019. He says, however, when I repeated the survey in 2019, the percent of, resp of respondents of a number of nearly 3,000 women was 92% saying that they had viewed pornography within the last year. 92% of women in the last year in Saudi Arabia had viewed pornography. Now, he goes on to, to talk about premarital and marital stuff, but what is fascinating and 
Again, this is what I think is so absurd. Here he is as a doctor saying, this was a survey I took. Obviously, the survey came from my own followers, so that could be skewed a little bit as far as the sample of who was actually being asked these questions. But nonetheless, it is a, it's a survey. And a shockingly high number of respondents said, yes, I have viewed pornography in the last year. 92% of women. People think that this is a, a male issue. It is not a male issue anywhere in the world anymore. It is not just a male issue of pornography. And it's not a small issue either. But this is where I think it gets quite disturbing, which is another doctor, his name is Idan, attacked him saying, I used to call for the protection of doctors against those attacking them, but now I call for the protecting of society from some doctors and calling them to account for their insults. It's like, okay, someone published a study that you don't like. You don't like the results of this study. You don't like what it says. You don't like the fact that it says in the study that a lot of women have viewed pornography. And it shames, it feels as a shame and affront to your culture. Maybe instead of attacking the person that says, hey, this is something that's going on in society, we try to shame, we try to sweep it underneath the rug. Instead of doing that, why don't we say, hmm, wow, this is interesting. This is fascinating. I think this might be a problem. Maybe we should try to solve this problem. What is going on? And asking questions and seeking further. But it's often, and, and this is, you know, this, this happens everywhere. It doesn't just happen in Saudi Arabia. It happens in the West all the time. Someone comes out with a study. Someone comes out with a fact. And people just attack them. You'd be like, I can't believe you're, you're insulting. Well, that's transphobic. Well, that's this phobic. But that's whatever phobic. It's insulting. You can't say that. It's like, well, man, I'm just, this is the data. Here it is. Here's the data. And it's not just, as I said, it's not just in Saudi, but it's around the world. Here's a study from 2015, 2016 from the Barna Group. They said, and this is concerning men. This is what they found in men. 63% of 18 to 30-year-olds viewed pornography several, several times a week. 63%. 77 of 31 to 49-year-olds have looked at porn while at work in the past three months, and 35% of men had extramarital affairs. In women, they found that 76% aged 18 to 30 admitted to watching porn at least once a month. 76% of women in the West, watching porn at least once a month. 21% in that same age group, 18 to 30, view pornography several times a week. So men, several times a week, 63%. Women, 21%. Women, once a month, 76%. Men, looking at porn once every three months at work, 77%. 25% of women, married women, 25% of married women watch porn at least once a month. 
This is not merely man's issue. Now, the next, the next statement, the next sentence is like, well, you know, oh, it looks like everyone's doing it, so it might, must be okay. No. Even the American Psychological Psychology Association states that viewing porn is a form of infidelity. That if you are watching porn and you're married, you're committing infidelity against your spouse and against your partner. What does that mean? It's not just, hey, shame, shame on you. Shame on you. No, I'm not just saying shame on you. I'm saying this actually hurts your marriage. This hurts your relationship. This hurts your spouse. It, it, it causes the same, not the same level, but the, a degree of brokenness in your relationship, of infidelity, just as it would if you were going out and having an extramarital affair with someone. It is extremely damaging. Not to mention that a large majority of these women are being trafficked, are being pimped out. They're prostitutes. And the average age into prostitution and trafficking in America is 11 years old. So they're minors on top of that, oftentimes. They start as minors where they come from broken homes and broken families. Now, of course, someone's going to find the one-off person who didn't. Okay, that's fine. You, you can find the fringe cases, but we're, t- we're talking about the, the majority of cases. Not only this, but it rewires and remaps the dopamine paths in our mind, causing us to actually become addicted, causing marital problems, car- causing erectile dysfunction. Porn is toxic. It is addictive. And it will destroy, it is destroying and will destroy marriages. And there, there, there is freedom to be found. There's freedom to be have. You can live free of this. You're not a victim to this. You don't have to remain a victim to this if you are currently a victim to this. There's, find someone to be accountable to. Get apps on your phone and on your computer like Covenant Eyes. Free things on your phone so that when you are tempted and when you're falling into that, the person that you're being accountable to, they're going to call you out and call you higher. They're going to get an email saying, hey, just so you know, by the way, and you want that in your life. You want people in your life to call you higher because these things will destroy your life. Now, as I said, we have two little somewhat disconnected segments in this segment. The other thing is something that's destroying people's lives. Well, this video surfaced just last week on the on the TikToks of the world of a woman in Texas teaching an an English literature class. And she makes this statement while someone is recording, recording her unbeknownst to her. And uh, this is what she has to say. There we go. Stop it. We're not going to call them that. We're going to call them maps. Minor attracted persons. So don't judge people just because they want to have sex with a five-year-old. 
Don't just judge people because they want to have sex with a five-year-old, she says. She says, we're not going to call them, we're not going to call them pedophiles. We're going to call them maps. Don't, don't judge people. Don't be like that. Listen to, listen to the clip again. See if you can hear it. What? Stop it. Yeah. Yeah, no, we're not going to call them that. We're going to call them maps. No. Minor attracted persons. No. So don't judge people just because they want to have sex with a five-year-old. Oh. This is, this is just shocking. It would be shocking if you heard this. And so people are up, up in arms. This woman has gotten fired. People are like, I can't believe that she's promoting uh, pedophilia in the classroom. And we've talked about maps before, minor, minor attracted people. And it's a term that the left is using. They're saying, ah, oh, you know what? Love is love is love is love. And calling someone a pedophile, it, man, it's really hurtful. And it, it has a stigma around it. We need to call them minor attracted people because it's okay. It's okay to be attracted to minors. What's wrong with that? Well, unbeknownst to the, the Twitter TikTok mob, this, she was actually being sarcastic in this statement. She was trying to show kids and show them how if the masses are saying something, it's easy to be convinced of like, okay, I'm not going to stand up for what I believe. I'm not going to stand up for what is right. I'm going to go along with what everyone else is saying because I don't want to stick out. Now, she was teaching about a, a book called The Crucible. We're in The Crucible. It's about the Salem witch trials and about people accusing other people of being witches so that they could hang them, burn them at the stake, and then take their lamb for, land for cheap. And it's a very famous book that is read all across uh, high schools in the world. Um, and so she's trying to draw a parallel of saying, hey, in this, in this story, people went along with calling them witches. People went along with the narrative that was being pushed because of peer pressure, because they didn't want to be accused of being a witch too. They didn't want to be accused of being hateful and bigoted or, or not religious enough. And so she was trying to use sarcasm and uh, it was lost on the masses. The school board voted to have her removed even after the fact that they found out that she was being sarcastic. They still said, yeah, stick to the lesson plan. Uh, you've caused us too many headaches. You've caused us too much pain. Uh, you can't do that. You can't say that. And we don't want you working here anymore. Now, the county, this is where it gets double, double layered of interesting. The county that she teaches at is an extremely, extremely progressive county in Texas uh, that is pushing for trans LGBTQ plus identities to be normalized. So then you have to wonder, okay, maybe she's actually being sarcastic and she's actually calling out this ridiculous ideology of trying to call pedophiles maps and pointing out how it's so ridiculous. Don't go along with it. And she actually got fired because mm, we have our, our agenda is actually to do that. 
to be able to push this sort of ideology, to be able to normalize this thing, and, and you're bringing to light something that we're trying to do and don't actually want to be out there, or probably the more likely scenario is that they just didn't want the controversy and they knew that if they don't do something, it'll be their necks on the line. And so, sorry, lady, you have got to go. Well, this show is brought to you by listeners like you. This is a value for value podcast, meaning if you get value out of the show, we ask that you give value back to the show in the measure that you got it, whether that's 50 cents an episode, a dollar an episode, 20 bucks a month. You can do so by giving your hard cold fiat at lucasrobotskrobot.com backslash support. And you can give your hard cold fiat there. Or if you like the Bitcoins, you can listen on apps like Podcast or uh, Podfriend, Breeze, or Sphinx, where you can stream Satoshis minute by minute as you listen. Well, don't go away. We'll be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destinies. Today's quote is from none other but the prophet Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs, ancient wisdom. I read this this week and uh, yeah, it just really struck me. Here he goes. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. There's a couple of things that we want to break down in this quote today. There's a couple of different layers. At first, it starts out with the poor is disliked by even his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. This hits on a couple different levels. The first level it hits on is that a rich person has many friends, not because they have many friends and because they're liked and people love them, but because they're rich, because they have money and they can bless other people with that money, which that can break down into a couple other things. One, it's better to have money to be able to be generous and give to people. However, these friendships are being exposed as being superficial. You're not actually loved. You don't actually have friends. They just want your money. They don't love you for you. Lots of times in society, we think that, okay, if I get famous, then I'll be loved. If I get money and have status, then I'll be loved. Then I'll have the, the thing that I want that will fill my heart that lacks love. But in reality, it won't. Many people are chasing fame, are chasing attention because we're equating that attention, attention with love. But that is not love. And it does not fill our heart in the same way. And here it says, the poor is disliked even by his neighbor. But then it creates this very interesting turn in the second part of this proverb. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner. So if your neighbor is poor and you dislike him, meaning if you despise him, you're a sinner. That the neighbor who dislikes his poor neighbor is a sinner. 
And then it finishes it with, blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Generous financially, generous with their life, generous with their emotion, generous with their affection. It doesn't say whoever is selfish and greedy and keeps money back from giving to his neighbor or giving to the poor is a sinner, even though that's true. It says whoever despises his neighbor, whoever despises the poor is a sinner. But blessed are those who are generous, who like the poor, who spend time with the poor, who give to the poor out of their energy, emotion, attention, their finances. And I read this week and just that, that connection of how many times we are searching, we, we want to be rich because we think that it will give us the relationship and the love and the affection and the friendships that we're longing for and need, but it won't. And then on the opposite side of it, are we despising our neighbor and being a sinner because they're, they're poor and they're not able to give to us? And I don't mean the person next door neighbor, I mean the people in your city, the poor in your city, the neglected, the forgotten, the less than in your city, the unseen in your city, in your town, in your neighborhood? Or are you being generous to those around you, those who you don't see, those who are invisible, those who don't have the status that you might have, that don't have the income that you might have, who don't have anything to give back to you, that if you give them a gift, it will be impossible for them to return that gift to you. Are you being generous with them? And I, when I read this, I did not think that, oh, here I am doing everything right. I thought, wow, here, here's an area that I can greatly grow in, that I want to greatly grow in, in, in giving attention to those around me who might not have the same social status that I have. Not that I have a huge high social status, there's always people that are below us in social status and above us in so, so, social status. Am I only giving my attention and affection and my, my gifts to those who are above me? Or am I being generous to those beneath me so that I will be blessed, so that I won't be a sinner? Well, that's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Re- remember, if you wanna get more out of the show, you can do so by sharing this with your friends. Share it with someone who thinks like you to help build the language and culture in your community. If you have any questions, you can WhatsApp me at plus one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero, and I will answer them right here on the show and right there in the text message. Finally, go out this week, be generous to the poor, and own your future.